Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to a neatly tucked edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast where Caroline the Moo Cow hardly gives milk but squirts out plenty of attitude and sass. And speaking of Cal Ardley, I'm Aaron, but you can call me Theodora, she-bitch of Byzantium. And I'm joined, as usual, by the dancing equivalent to Quigley Down Under. It's Matt the Quigs Master. How's it going? Hey, it's good to see you. Good to see yeah. you. Yeah, good to hear you. You too. Haven't been on in a few episodes. Busy, busy, busy. You have been very, very busy. Have you got anything to plug? Yeah, I'm up here in Queensland, in Mackay, and I am directing Song Contest, the Almost Eurovision Experience uh, for the students here at Central Queensland University uh, at the Conservatorium here in Mackay, which is a pair of Eurovision, which how can you do a parody of Eurovision? Because Eurovision's a bit of a parody of itself. Well, you'll have to find out if you come to Song Contest. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no comment. If for people who follow me on Twitter, I had a lot to say about this year's Eurovision. Commentators would talk over the hosts and they would talk over the guests. Shut the fuck up! Anyways, I lost my shit on Twitter. Without naming names, without naming names, I didn't attack anybody, I didn't add anybody. It was just rude, people. Anyways, um, so and anything else? I know you've just shot a film. Are you left? I was in a film called Zombie Plane, which hopefully will come out sometime next year. It's a horror comedy yep. with Vanilla Ice and Sophie Monk and Little Old Me, yep. in a very non-speaking but hopefully very visible role. <laughs> yep, hopefully. I got to do stunts. I get CGI'd, falling out of a plane. All sorts of weird things happen in this very strange movie called. And hopefully hilarious movie called Zombie Plane. I even become a zombie, so that was pretty cool. Awesome. And it's a horror comedy. Well, anyways, so I have been making paper mache Halloween decorations just quickly. There's my head, right? And here's my gravestone. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Can you see the concrete? Yes, it's incredible. Look at that. That's just pulp and glue. And then I use that as well to shape the letters and then paper mash it over it. But the one I am most proud of, my family hasn't seen it because my mum hates it. She's like, oh, this is going to look shit. Really? Have a look at that. Ooh, fantastic. That's really great. I love it. It's not finished yet. But I love that. <laughs> We're going to tell the listeners what it is. It looks very realistic. It's it's a bit it's a bit scary. It's, it's it is bringing out some anxiety for me. <laughs> yes, yes, I have a fear of this particular thing, like a terrifying fear of it, which is sad because I have to sleep on my floor because my back, right? This is the flat surface. It's like literally the only way I can sleep, and so therefore I am literally sleeping with these things yep. all the time. Hey, hey, hey. But anyways, guess what? What? We have a legendary drag diva on the catwalk today, and he's joining us alone with a cast of thousands. So pitch a tent because we're going camp with this actor, singer, playwright, and gender-bending legend who flipped his wig and tucked into a phenomenal career that has seen him sizzle up stages and screens since Sister Esther's sister act, also solidifying a habit of serving several superior Sunday sermons with none other than the Divine Sister and the titular Myrtle Pope before congregating a theatrical party of one for 
for his first One Diva show, Hollywood Confidential, then before our mother's eyes is Valencia Rose, Rose Like Sleeping Beauty, or Coma Toast Elephant Woman, for a jaunty saunter under the Shanghai moon, before a snack under an oak tree, or, as lesbian vampires of Sodom call, a red scare at sunset, because the lady in question clearly loves some campy horror, and if you don't like that, you can either pardon my inquisition or kiss the blood off my castanets, before I castanet over three dozen or more credits that our grand leading lady has been caught in. I mean, so many incredible credits, they make me want to die, mummy. Die! And you should be so lucky. So call the House of Flowers and help us two old koozie whores of lost Atlantis plant a huge Aussie g'day, Anna, bouquet you stay, to prisoner 99G376 of Oswald State Penitentiary and perennial New York cabaret mainstay who's an acclaimed purveyor of fine pages to stages with the late and legendary Rusty McGee's Greenheart, today's chosen cruisical, Boy George's Taboo, plus his Tony-nominated play, The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, which was nothing to sneeze at. So whilst I bless you with a third story filled with divas on screen, I'm afraid it'll take all night. Plus we have only one life to live and with trouble on the corner it could happen to you. So don't be a very serious person. Instead set your Frasier to stunning because it's a lipstick jungle out there and we all need those Adams family values. Also, I would just like to say that it is my conviction, as we welcome to our torture chamber, this truly trailblazing glamazon, this romp and stomping living legend who made waves by driving Miss Crazy for his cult classic comedy horror, Psycho Beach Party, so unpack your bongos and bunga cow as we hang ten with the totally binocular, the bodaciously multi-talented Queen Charles Bush, yay, welcome to the torture chamber, yay. how are you going? Oh my God! Well, I'm exhausted. Yes, it's all right. <laughs> just, just seeing my life go before my eyes like that. Oh my God! I am so honored to have you on. I really am so so honored to have you on. I am such a huge fan of Psycho Beach Party. I actually have two copies of it on DVD because I wore out the first one and I did just watch it again before and I was quoting it all the way through. So thank you so much for joining us. Goodness gracious, well, anyway, I'm thrilled to, to be with you. Yep, no, thank you so much for saying yes. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'd watched Oz as well, obviously. That was just such a, a an impactful show for a, a young gay in the late 90s, <laughs> early 2000s, let's just say. So. Help me through puberty. <laughs> Anyways, we'll move on very, very quickly. So, uh, and I I know Matt, being from New York, has, has known your work for, for so many years. So I saw a great production of Psycho Beach Party at a Jesuit college in Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> were, were they performing it there? They performed it, yes. This is uh, probably around the time I was at NYU, so in the in the early, uh, maybe mid-90s. Oh, a Jesuit college put on that dirty play? Yeah, yeah, at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> wow. Yes, my friend Craig directed it, and it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. You know, um, that play actually surprisingly has been done at all sorts of schools. And a number of, I found out way later that uh, I think a whole bunch of drag queens who've been on RuPaul's Drag Race have said that the very first time they ever got into drag was in a local production of, of Psycho Beach Party. There you go. And Jim Parsons, wonderful actor Jim Parsons, being in a production of that, I think in his college, made him feel that it was possible for him to actually uh, be an out gay actor oh, wonderful. So it's, it's awfully nice when i when, when i'm feeling pretty depressed about my um career i think back well it's kind of a nice legacy it's an amazing legacy charles i've said numerous times on the show drag 
has raised me. And then obviously Psycho Beach Party comes along in 2000, which admittedly I saw because I was a huge Buffy fan. And Nicholas Brendan hadn't done any movies. Mm. You know, I was huge, huge Sarah Michelle Gellar fan. So I'd see everything she did, even that terrible Vanilla Fog or Simply Irresistible. They changed it to with Sean Patrick Flannery. That was an awful romantic comedy. I loved it because she was in it. So I had to seek out this movie to see it. Like, because it didn't get a release here or anything. Well, not that I knew of. Wow. If anything, it was an independent cinema release. Nowhere near me. Well, how did you find it, Danny? I uh, ended up, I was in the city at JB Hi-Fi and I had only recently got a DVD player. So I had like $100 of my birthday money to spend on DVDs. And I saw Psycho Beach Party there and I picked it up straight away. I think it might have been like the first one that I, I selected because oh. I take hours to pick any movie to buy or rent. And that one I saw and I, I knew straight away because I'd been wanting to see it so much. Like mm. Oddly enough, for the, the foreign um, DVD sales, I think that they, the foreign distributor edited out almost my entire role in the movie. So I don't know if you've ever... Have you was was I in it? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, they they cut my whole subplot out of out of the movie for um. I think uh, maybe you have an Amer- maybe you have a USA version. Yeah, um, possibly. Uh, it goes for ninety minutes. It says on here. So yeah. if there's the edited version, goes for shorter, or the proper cut goes for longer. I don't know. It's been many years, but I I, I was kind of upset about it at the, at the time. It would be. I had no idea. Oh goodness gracious! Because I had a killer cast. It really it was so well cast and. Uh-huh. A young Amy Adams. Lauren Ambrose. Lauren Ambrose. Yeah, Lauren. Lauren incredible. Ambrose from Can't Hardly Wait. But uh, obviously, yeah, she had then gone on to Six Feet Under. Amy Adams right. had done, really don't mean disrespect by this, but she was doing like Cruel Intentions 2 straight to DVD and stuff like that and guest spots on TV. And so this was sort of one of her really earliest film roles that really shows what a remarkable talent she is. And then you look at where she's come now and it was sort of, as I said, I watched it just before and it was her especially, you can see that that is a star right there. Absolutely. But everyone else, so, so well cast. And Lauren Ambrose, obviously, because Can't Hardly Wait. I watched that recently as well and I love that movie so, so much. But she's just so talented, you know, being an opera singer and... I was going to say with the singing as well. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Goodness great. You, you really did. And Matt Kiesler as well. He was in Scream 3, which I have on my wall uh, next week. Actually, I have someone from Scream on this show. And during the recording, I actually get choked up. It doesn't happen often, Charles, but I get choked up talking about being 12 years old and watching it with my mom. And I'm so, it suddenly clicked in my head like, oh, shit, I've got so-and-so sitting there right in front of me. That was a wonderful feeling. I know. right? But we're like 90-something episodes in. This is nothing new. It was just scream i absolutely love slashes i love i know matt's not the biggest fan of them but i don't care well i'm the producer so i make these decisions (laughs) uh anyways we'll we'll move on because i'm glad you wore eyebrows so i know if any of my jokes (laughs) you'll see it when if if one is raised yeah i always say to my co-host i'm gonna watch the video over so i know if any eyebrows were raised during that introduction because they're meant to be roastful and boastful and sort of you know make fun of of things along the way Anyways, um, drag is obviously causing a bit of a splash lately, so let's offend some more people <laughs> today. We'll move on, because we'll move on to the closest thing I could find in metal to drag and, and gender bending is glam metal, obviously. The Tony Awards are coming up. How do you feel about genderless acting categories? Well, I, I'm, I'm ambivalent about what I eat for breakfast, so I see two sides to almost, almost everything. 
um, I, in a, in a way, it seems necessary because there are these there are performers dominated who um, are are gender fluid. So, you know, what category do you put them in? But on the other hand, I think it's possible that um, if there's still only five nominees, that you could get into a situation where it's um, almost all all men nominated or or all women and you know i certainly wouldn't want to you know if i was up for an award that year i, I wouldn't want to be the one who's who's um yeah, yeah. screwed over yeah i was talking to someone about it recently because you only need to look through the history of the oscars the grammys the emmys all these awards of the genderless categories that you have you have screenwriters you have designers you have directors there are plenty of genderless categories that's true it's only the performance that is separated and that's i think maybe possibly for a reason because at at first i don't think they were i don't think they were separated i think there was it was just best performance for a couple of the different i'm not sure which it was maybe like the golden globes and it was swayed to men and it kept going to men. Well, it often happens because because you know usually there there more uh, there are fewer great roles for for women in movies. Mm. So you know to to really show show what they can do. Yeah, I wonder if it's the answer would be to always have ten nominees, like like because you know possibly there are now there've always been five in each category. Yeah. So just keep it ten, and and maybe it'll be one year six women and. Three gender fluid and the four. I can't do the math, but whatever. You know what I mean. Um, yeah, the Oscars do ten with the movies. Uh, but anyway, so yes, as I say, we I picked glam metal and I went with Twisted Sister. Now, what would be in your ultimate rock star rider if you could pick anything? I I, I was very good friends with um, Joan Rivers, the comedian. Oh, my goddess. Yeah, I just loved her so much. And well, I, I asked her one time for advice on a, on a contract. What, what, should I ask for anything? And, and she she said, "Always ask for something difficult. They'll respect you more." Yeah. So yeah, but I, I've never done that. Really? I'm always always afraid to to come off badly. So I've, I've never asked for anything eccentric. If I could, but if you could, like a kangaroo. I don't know. Actually, don't because they hurt when they start laying into you. Well, a basket full of kittens. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh. I get so nervous before I get on. It's gotten worse as I've gotten older. My my, I don't call it stage fright as much as stage anxiety. I always just you know wish that the theater oh. had burned down or something just because it set me free. But maybe if there was some just a basket full of little cuddly kittens, it'd be kind of hard to feel anxious with that. Boy, I sound sappy, but I I don't know. Yeah, that's all I can think of. Something something to to comfort me down uh yeah yeah no the best way for me not to argue with someone's answer is animals plain and simply puppies kitty cats yeah puppies yeah whatever yeah. koalas i don't care like if someone says bottled water then i'm like no nah, i'm sorry i'm putting my foot down but animals no nah, i'm one over straight away Anyways, I, I know you don't have any experience with metal. Now, I chose Twisted Sister because Dee Snyder said, we used to wear women's clothes until my wife rocked up and we were wearing the same top. So I thought that was <laughs> the perfect reason to pick um, Come Out and Play. Now, Matt- sure. All right. Well, as a child of the 80s, well, I was born in the 70s, uh, this album had me at Hello with Twisted Sister, come out to play, because of the Warriors. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that film, but I found all those guys hot. So anyway, that took me right back to this amazing place. That might have been the film, The Warriors, that turned me gay. I don't know if this is the album that turned me gay, but uh, speaking of gay, 
The next track on the album is a very loyal cover of Leader of the Pack. I love me a little bit of Ellie Greenwich, uh, you know, the Shangri-Las, which led me to the video of Leader of the Pack. I think the whole thing about this album for me <laughs> is that I enjoyed watching the videos of this album more than I enjoyed listening to it. Okay. I mean, I want what we got. Yeah, fine. Great. I believe in rock and roll. We pledge allegiance to the flag of rock. I mean, you cannot beat these lyrics. You cannot beat the sentiment. And then, of course, the fire still burns. I started to feel it was a little bit of same, same for this album. I mean, again, I'm not really, you know, I, I'm not really a metal person. Uh, I'm more of the musical theater variety. So, and then we get to Be Cruel to Your School, which again, went immediately to the video. <laughs> I listened to that one because the video didn't get played on MTV. It was very strange. I, I guess the whole thing about this album that was so exciting for me was just learning more about Twisted Sister and seeing finding that the history of the band and this was only one year after uh, their big album and then they just sort of petered out very quickly and well of course because there were senate hearings about you know they, that they were inciting violence and all this sort of business so yeah uh be, but be cruel to school is pretty cool I and mean, you've got some alice cooper in there you've got billy joel on the piano like how can you not love that um and of course in the video we've got bobcat goldthwaite who seem to be in a lot of the videos of this album. They seem to use the same actors uh, over and over. So we're halfway through the album. I Believe in You, great guitar hook, Out in the Streets, a little bit same, same for me. Looking out for number one, I was thinking, ooh, the T's vo voice sounding a little bit tired at this point. <laughs> so then a few more tracks and we get to King of Fools. It's the rock ballad to end it all. But was it the rock ballad that ended it all? Because, yeah, this the, after this album, it's, it's so confusing to me that everything just petered out, that they had been going for years and years and years, you know, from the previous incarnation before they became Twisted Sister, and they had been selling out before they recorded, and this was their fourth studio album. And then by the end of the tour of this album, I was reading on Wikipedia, so it must be true, they were having to cancel shows because people weren't coming to the concerts. I mean, it, it's so confusing to me and i mean I, again like i think it's a you know it's a, it's probably about a three maybe a two and a half to three star out of five for me um i found it a little bit generic and same same but i mean come on it's twisted sister and there's a legacy there that should be respected so yeah so okay i'll definitely give it three because i i respect the legacy even though it's not my favorite twisted sister album yeah i didn't mind it myself. I thought King of Fools really spoke to me for obvious reasons. Well, I only have one other example of theirs. I can't remember which album it was. Let me click their name and I'll be able to tell you. Uh, Stay Hungry. Mm -hmm. So it was the, the one before with We're Not Gonna Take It. So that, yeah. and we did that a few, two years ago now. Yeah, I didn't mind. I, I have been listening to Meatloaf's Dead Ringer, which also didn't get the best reception, but I'm... Oh, sorry, that's in next episode. We haven't talked about that yet. And as opposed to... I'm so excited. I get to talk fucking scream with someone who got killed by Ghostface. Oh <laughs> my godfathers. Anyways, sorry. Um, With this album, again, I mean, I think with, I think the thing about Twisted Sister is... In, and, you know, the, Dee talks about this. Dee Snyder talks about this. That the videos were always camp and fun and it was yep. they were just doing them for entertainment i mean of course be cruel to school also the video is about zombies so you know i'm a bit of a zombie fan nowadays like i said but this album i've just found watching the videos made 
made it much more exciting and palatable for me. At just my little sensitive musical theater ears sitting through the album <laughs> <laughs> was a little bit of a challenge. But then when I got some visuals in front of me, I was very happy. Yeah. Oh, awesome. I'm going to have to check out the videos. I don't think I've ever listened to a, a heavy metal album yeah. in my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this was camp, tight leather pants, cod pieces, big hair, makeup. Like that. That sort of thing. Mm. It's you must you must know Twisted Sister though. Seen D Snyder's pictures. Yeah, I'm I'm I am i do not yeah. you know live in a convent, darling, you know, but um, <laughs> I just don't um I've, n- I've never really listened. Well, they do do leader of the pack. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and it's a very loyal rendition it of is. it, I'd say. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know they did covers like that. They did on this one. And the video is very camp. Their videos are very camp, which is a lot uh-huh. of fun. Are they still in, still working? Uh, they broke up shortly after this album, then they got back together. But I think that they've broken up again. They, D. Snyder at least recently was saying that, you know, bands from that era, he's like, I'm done. <laughs> they shouldn't even get back yeah. together anymore. Yeah, um, I remember, uh, well, I'd always heard that song, but Bette Midler's recording on, like, I think it was her first album was where I first really um, glued into that song. Oh, really? So I, I yeah. love the old yeah. 60s girl groups. I yeah, yeah. grew up with them with my mom. So don't really, you know, I, I never ask any questions. It's the tragedy of my life. So you, I, I thought that you were actually going to be playing these songs. I know there are podcasts out there that play music, but they don't pay for uh... it. I have too many actual artists on my show like professional artists who created the music yeah that would be played so i save myself that money though every bit of music we do use is all legitimate music it's all proper we've gotten the rights to it and stuff like that to use so like our theme song is a proper song so i see and i have one more question so matt i can't your accent keeps sort of slightly changing from kind of uh, american to australian are, where are you from? I'm American born. I was born in, well, I was born actually in Orange, New Jersey, but I grew up in Gardner, Massachusetts. And then my husband is Australian. So I moved here 23 years ago. I see. Okay. So it goes all over the shop, Charles. <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. Yeah, I know. It's so confusing. I, I'm like, what, what the hell is this guy? I'll be English. I'll be Australian. <laughs> I'll be American. Yeah. It's all over the, all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm used to it by now. I just hear Matt. Really? But I lived in New York. Uh, I went to New York University, so I lived there from 1990 to 2000, 2001. Oh. I actually left right before September 11th. I see. Anyway, that's another story for another time. Did you ever see me on the stage? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think I had. I don't. I mean, I certainly knew who you were. Um, but no, I don't believe I saw you on the stage. I mean, I've certainly seen you on screen. Mm. Yeah, strange that our past did not cross. <laughs> yes, yes. Particularly yeah. because so often I've performed downtown, and I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't, I'm not really sure how that happened that I haven't haven't caught you on stage. So apologies, but it's nice to meet you now. So I have an excuse. I'm stuck in Melbourne, Matt. Shame on you. True. And I've never been to Australia. Oh, haven't you? Oh, come on over. No. I'm not. Well, funnily enough, there, there's been two productions, I think, or three productions of Psycho Beach Party in Melbourne, and I knew about none of them. Otherwise, I would have gone and seen them. Bloody hell, I miss out on everything. One of them was Midsummer, so it would have been at least semi-professional, I think. Right. Possibly. That, that's our gay pride. But yeah, oh, anyways, we'll move on from the medal if I can find my segue, because it looks like we've straightened out 
Twisted Sister, so we're going to come out and play an outbreak. G'day listeners, Aaron here. With summer about to bring a whole lot of tourists to New York, we thought we better check out what are the hottest tickets on Broadway for this summer season. So for the next few weeks, Spencer the Broadway Spy is going to be diving into the Broadway box office to let us know what's selling like hotcakes. So here with the first entry, it's Spencer the Broadway Spy. We're going to talk about this week's Broadway grosses, the week ending May 21st. What's interesting about this week is we have a couple of new shows making the highest amount of money that they've made the entire season that they've been on. And we also had some interesting things happen with Funny Girl. Our top 10 this week from 10 to 1, we have Some Like It Hot, who crossed over a million dollars for the first time since the show opened. Then we have Anne Juliet, which has been making over a million dollars probably since they opened, a little bit after they opened, but they also made the most that they've made with $1.18 million. Then we have Harry Potter, which made $1.19, Aladdin, $1.38, Moulin Rouge, $1.4, Wicked, which made $1.68, and then you have MJ, which grossed $1.69, Sweeney Todd, which is as you could tell probably doing the best of all of the new shows, made $1.87 million. And then you have Hamilton with $1.9. Hamilton has been making over a million dollars since its first preview. They used to be making around $3 million pre-pandemic, and now they've lowered their tickets to a more reasonable price, and they are still grossing a lot of money on that. And then you have The Lion King, our top show, with $2.1 million. And then you have some other shows, including Funny Girl, which made probably the least amount of money they've grossed since uh, Leah Michelle joined the show, and their lowest capacity, 67% capacity, which is not great. You want a show to probably be around 80% capacity in order to be making a profit, because you have to remember, these are all gross numbers, not profit numbers. So they still have to subtract whatever they it costs to produce the show out of these numbers. This week, you had been plat out of parade for three performances, so they grossed about $100,000 less than last week. And then you had some plays. You have Goodnight Oscar. You have uh, Sean Hayes, who is a celebrity in that show. They've been hovering around 70% for that. And then you have Leopoldstadt, which is a extremely beautiful Tom Stoppard play, whose percentages, their capacity percentage, has been going down steadily since February. And it's a shame to see because it's really a beautiful play. And then we have Shucked, which did the most money that it has grossed since it opened which is fantastic. Again, Tony nominations bolstering the finances. And then we had the two shows that have opened for the 2023-2024 season. Once Upon a One More Time, the Britney Spears jukebox musical, which grossed $580,000 and had around 74% capacity, which is good for a new show. And then we have Grey House, which is a play uh, which grossed around $352,000, but they were at 86% capacity. I have not seen this show yet, so I don't know really how much it costs to produce, but for a play, $352,000 is pretty good. And that is this week's Broadway Girls Roundup.
Anyways, we're back with Fresh and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Matt the Young. Hi. And we're joined by the royally glamorous Charles Bush, writer of one of my favorite movies, as I've mentioned a million times, Psycho Beach Party. So I do have to ask, are we ever going to get a musical version or better still, a sequel or better, better still, a musical sequel? And can I write it? <laughs> I, I've, a number of times people, people have asked me if they they have the rights to... Oh. Um... Bugger. To write a musical of it, but uh, I'll fight them with one arm behind my back. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I always say now. Well, it's so many places we're we're doing the play that I, I kind of thought I'd rather just keep the money, you know, and uh, not not have another version out that I'd have to you know, sh- share. So uh, you know, because when when something becomes a musical, you know, musical is the composer and the lyricist and the book writer, mm-hmm. the adapter, you know. So um, I wouldn't probably see too much out of that. So. So selfishly, I, I think, no, just keep things the way they are. Yeah, no, that's yeah. fair enough. Don't ruin the classics. Well, you could do the Mel Brooks thing, like the producers, and just write all the music and all the lyrics. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. But anyways, obviously, no, don't ruin classics, people. Please just leave things alone. Create new stories. Anyways, okay, so this week I chose Ankles Away, which Charles had, speaking of leaving classics alone, had rewritten the book when Goodspeed did it. I think it was 88 or 87. Uh, When you mentioned Ankles Away, that's such an obscure flop musical from the uh, 50s. But the album became kind of a cult collector's. Um, and I was so surprised that you brought that up because it just so happened. I did actually work on a version of Ankles Away in the late 80s and got, got to know Sammy Fain, the, at that point, very elderly composer of, of the musical. And we really hit it off. And, and he was quite old. And I think he, he said, said to me, you're a fine little fella. <laughs> I don't think he'd ever met anyone quite like me. And I wrote an entirely new story for, for this musical. And we worked so hard on it. But, you know, the local critics in, in Connecticut that reviewed it couldn't really get past the idea that it had been a famous flop. And so it, they just couldn't quite get behind it. But we, I thought we did an awfully good job. Well, at least the way I turned it into kind of a gentleman prefer blonde sort of story. Yeah, yeah. About two movie star sisters who are um, filming a, a movie in I think Sorrento, Italy. And oh, just hilarity ensues. But it's got a fun, fun score, just real classic Broadway 1950s score. Well, I had no idea. I knew Anchors Away. I knew that one. Well, Anchors Away is yeah, a very famous 40s musical, you know, with Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly. Yeah. And I would have picked Mame. You played Auntie Mame, but we did that last week. So we obviously couldn't do it again. Auntie Mame. Yeah. And the. The straight play that the musical is based on has kind of been the uh, through line motif through my whole life. Yeah. You know, I was actually, my, my childhood was basically the story of Auntie Mame. I was, um, uh, after my mother died when I was a very young kid, my my aunt, my mother's older sister, who lived in, in New York City, uh, adopted me. And I w- went to live with her. So a plot of Auntie Mame. And then, um, oh, it just keeps going around and around. Then my uh, former partner, Eric Myers, wrote a wonderful biography of Patrick Dennis, who's the author of the original yep. novel. Anti-Mame. And so during the two years that he researched that book, we got to know Patrick Dennis, late Patrick Dennis's uh, family and his whole circle of friends and became so, uh, you know, um, immersed in that world. And then later after that, I actually played Anti-Mame, the, the play, not the musical, for a, a tour. And that was just one of the great experiences of my life. It just keeps going round and round. Oh, wow. 
Well, I, I would say if I had known that, I wouldn't have done it last week. However, last week, Craig Bjorko breaks out into song singing My Best Girl to his mum on Mother's Day. Oh, so wow. How, how, how do I choose between the two? Seriously, I'm like torn. Like, no, I, I, it, it was all meant to be. It was all meant to be. Yes, you made the right choice. That's it. So uh, anyways, I'll, I'll quickly sort of skim through this. When I first decided to cover Ankles Away, it was only because we did MAME last week. So I embarked on what I can only presume is a body shaming musical about cankles. Turns out it's another classical show about semen. Even better, Italian semen. That's hot. Anyways, I turned on the aircon and didn't skip the build-up, and I don't mean foreplay, and this purely, quote, American musical led me to the innocently cheery Walk Like a Sailor, where naivety shines through with lyrics like, walk like a sailor, talk like a sailor, gag like a oh my god what kind of show is this surely i'm reading too much into this runs through my mind as the next track hits heading for the what bottom blues goodness gracious my poor poor innocent virginal ears anyways having no idea what's happening story-wise and often getting lost in daydreams of marrying a bearish uh, italian sailor i wait where was i what was i doing donato popped into my mind again ah All right, Ankles Away. Three and a half stars. There are actually some really good songs on on this album. I just had no idea it was going, which is a product of the time because they would stop, break out into song about how they were feeling, not tell the story. Um, But Mm -hmm. there was some some quote-unquote bangers, if you will. What's that? What's a banger? An Australian term for, like, just a great song. It's a banger. That's uh, a, a banger. <laughs> I've, I don't think I've ever said it in my life, to be honest. Yeah, that tune's a banger. Yeah, no, there, there was some. He, here's to dear old us kept getting stuck in my head. Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't mind it. I just don't know what the hell it was about. <laughs> so are you able to enlighten me? Well, I, don't, I think the original story was kind of non-existent, but it really was a throwback to the musicals of the 30s an excuse for some great songs and I think it was one of those situations where suddenly a chorus line of girls would come out and a sailor outfit with you know sailor hats on but um, we tried to turn it into a bit more of a book story. So what was yours about then? I, I gave it kind of a Cold War kind of farce thing where, where oh, yeah. there were spies and well, I think the the government, US government sort of thought that the, one of the girls was you know hiding microfilm or something. It was all very very silly but it became very uh, a farce and I think I had one of the girls get into drag. They're kind of like, it's like Marilyn Monroe and Jane Russell and Bill um, mm. for Blondes. And I, I had to kind of the Marilyn character ha- having to dress up as, as a sailor, passing off as a boy. And well, there were a lot of silly jokes about that. It was, a, it was a romp. It really was a pity that um, uh, we all kind of thought, oh, this is dollar signs all over it. And this is going to move on to Broadway. And 99% of the times that never happens. Yeah. yeah. It, it was it was, it was was fun. That's a shame because, as I say, like these songs are actually really good yeah they're fun yeah let's just say that look i will be the first to admit it when something grates on my tits and i'm happy to skip it because i i do have to be honest and i listen to these albums 20 times over like it's not just once i don't just sit there listen to once and write a bunch of stupid jokes i actually 
immerse myself. It's a torture chamber that I put myself through. Trust, if there was anything on here that I thought, like, I can see people walking out during this song, there wasn't at all. Like, I, yeah, I don't I don't understand it. It must be the story, really, and, and possibly casting. Yeah, I do think that in the 50s, when it was first produced, it, it, it probably seemed hopelessly old-fashioned, because this was the time when, when the musical theatre was getting more sophisticated and and um with guy uh you know guys and dolls and kiss me kate and you know um and leading towards west side story by the end of the the decade yeah, and all true. the rogers and hammerstein musicals and so yeah I, I imagine the critics back then just thought what the hell this is you know going going backwards so is there a bad show or is there just poor timing poor timing i think I was hired basically to give it a whole new story. It was kind of funny that this fellow, Dan Serretta, choreographer, director, I guess the artistic director at Goodspeed Opera, which is a wonderful theater up in Connecticut that does revivals mostly of, of classic musicals. And, and they always, in the past, and it shows there were big hits from the past. But Dan Serretta had very fond memories being, a, I think, 15-year-old going to see it on Broadway, and he lost his virginity with one of the chorus girls in the show. And so that just always it was kind of haunting in his mind. Allegedly. Allegedly. Please don't sue us. Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, that's what he said. <laughs> Maybe he was six, six, 16. Anyway, so he, it was a very fond memory uh, for, for him. And yeah, so, so he wanted to do this. And I think it was the first time the Goodspeed Opera had actually produced a, a, a famous flop. And I don't think they ever did again. Yeah. After this, somehow it was a famous flop and it stayed a flop. But I've had terrible luck with musicals. Every time I work on a musical, it, it never goes well. Honestly, writing the book to a musical is a very specific thing. And yeah. I'm not sure that um, that's really where my talents lie. And I, I don't really enjoy it. And each time I've attempted, it's not been successful. My biggest flop was a rather notorious Taboo, Broadway yeah. flop called Taboo. Boy George. Uh, it had actually been something of a something of a hit in london yeah diane pilkington or george yep. and it was it was based on his experiences when he was just just starting out mm-hmm. in in the new romantic movement in, in in london in the early 80s and it had been um it was it was kind of hit you know small hit in london but it was performed in a site-specific club you know and it was kind of funky and and uh, and rosie o'donnell went to see it in london and boy george really meant a lot to her you know when she was growing up and so she on the spot she's a very impulsive person she decided to produce the show herself and be the sole investor of this 10 million dollar show and promised boy george that he, she would bring him over to star in it not as himself but as the, the other main character was lee bowery lee bowery yeah australian born um, his house or his childhood house is about 12 13 minutes away ah yeah there's still a lee bowery party every year in brisbane where people come and dress oh, up and- fascinating figure oh, yeah yeah so anyway so so then she she felt that the um story in london was was rather weak and so she then brought me in to write an entirely new book and i i think generally you know it, it doesn't work when you have an existing score and then try to attach a whole new story to it, new characters. It, I, I don't know if it's ever completely worked, but didn't work with this one. 
Although it's funny, I put it down so much taboo and you know, because I was so miserable doing it, working on it. But there are a number of people who really loved that show and were kind of cultists like the Rocky Horror Show. You know, it ran 100 performances and there were a number of people who saw just about every one of them. And I've, oh. had, I've had to actually learn to um, be gracious. I remember one time um, I was doing another play years later and um, my friend Carl and I were leaving the theater and somebody came up to me with, I guess, a, a poster of Taboo. And he had, over the years, had everybody connected to it, sign it, except for me, because I wasn't around much. You know, I was the author. And when he showed me the poster, my first impulse was like, ah, you know, <laughs> and you know, then I, I signed it. And when we when we left, my friend Carl kind of lit into me and he said, you know, that was so rude. You know, you may have had a miserable experience, but that show meant a lot to that guy. And he'd gone all these years collecting all the autographs. You know, why couldn't you have just been nice and just, you know, shut up? But he was so right. And I, I thought, you know. And that from that point on, I thought I'll never do that ever again. That's really disrespectful. Yeah, I, I I agree there. I I see both sides there as also the artist. Well, just control yourself. Won't do that ever again. Diplomacy is very very important in this industry. It sucks, but it is very very important. Uh, anyways, now Matt, what did you think of this? Ankles away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, um, I was very excited to hear it and to to hear the orchestrations and to you know to to hear yeah. all of it. Yeah, I mean, but again, it, it's yeah. I was looking for the bangers. I was looking for those, you know, standouts. Just a few catchy. Yeah, there moments. weren't. I mean, I, I it was a very enjoyable listen. There wasn't anything that really jumped out at me, and I went, "Oh, I'm going to listen to this song again, and again, or put it in my repertoire book as a musical theater performer." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd like. I'm very interested now um, that you talked about that, Charles, to just hear more about the book, and I'm interested what songs or song drew you to it, or was it the concept that it had been a flop? Or... Oh, it was just. I was just more open those days throughout my twenties. You know, I was really struggling to try to find a place in the theater. You know, and it was and it was very difficult. I was a very androgynous uh, kid, and and I originally wanted to be an actor, but I have a pretty pragmatic nature, and I I saw certainly a university, I guess you call it, that um, uh, I was never cast in a play. I was just too, as they say, light. And I, I never got cast in a play. And I and there weren't really any roles I wanted to play. You know, this is in the early 70s. There was no Torch Song trilogy or Angels in America or The Inheritance or, you know, all these roles for gay actors. It didn't exist. So, you know, I, I, I couldn't really twist myself into a you know, st straight role. So, you know, I had it was rather devastating and I had to figure out how I was going to do this. And, and I knew I had an affinity for female characters that it just came out of me. You know, it's just part of me. And I started seeing more um, downtown avant-garde theater. And I saw there were people like Charles Ludlam, who was a very famous mm. American um, actor, playwright, director. The theater could be whatever I chose it to be. You know, I could just invent, try to invent my own war theatrical world. That's what I did, but it took took a while. Finally, when I was 31, I just kind of stumbled on to my big break was when we did this play Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. Mm -hmm. And it, we, you know, we did it first in an art gallery slash um, after hours bar in a very uh, kind of abandoned part of New York City called the East, East Village, mm -hmm. Alphabet City. Yeah, actually, it's a neighborhood featured in Rent. Yeah, uh, yes. It was, it was, a, it's a, this is in the uh, 1984, and Madonna kind of came out of that. Yep. Milia and Keith Herring, the artist. So it was very fertile, exciting period in this neighborhood that had been rather abandoned. And because of that, there were cheap rents and so very edgy galleries and 
dance clubs could come out of it. Anyway, so, you know, I put on this, it was only 45 minutes long, uh, Vampire Lesbians, and we, we did it just for fun, my friends and I in this club. And then it somehow caught on and we, we moved it to a commercial theater and became a big success. And then overnight, I actually had a career. I was so astonished actually that I was earning a living in, in show business and um, that people were suddenly interested in me. I couldn't have gotten a, a job in an agency as a temp, but suddenly, you know, William Morris agency wanted to sign me up. It was such a novel idea that I was much more open to things that I would be today. And so you know, I kind of was anything that came my way, I was intrigued by and yeah. got into a number of odd experiences but yeah so when good speed opera called up and said they were interested in me working on something called ankles away i i vaguely knew the title i think um mm -hmm. and um, i just thought you know might be interesting to, to try it so you know i got into a lot of experiences that way back back then and, uh, and then eventually i just was content to be in my own world yep like to say no yeah. At what point did you learn to say no? That's, that's, a, that's a really good question. When did I really? Um, I learned it somewhat early, but then you you slip like taboo. I had thought I had learned that lesson already that I I didn't really. I mean, it's, I, it's so hard to talk about this without it sounding pretentious. It is. I, I just didn't really like show business. And I've had this very odd, rather gentle career, you know, uh, working basically always with friends and the same people and and writing plays for a specific group of of actors that i i love that are good friends of mine and and you know i, I suppose i might have had a, a, a bigger career had i um been more open to showbiz but i, I never really enjoyed it you know i just never liked it now there was a period where the, the same period around when i was doing when i did ankles away uh there was interest in me in television as a, a sitcom writer and so it was all sort of novel for somebody to be interested at all that, you know, I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it. And, and so I, I wrote a number of, of uh, TV pilots because I actually, I, I, I don't know if how much talent I had for actually writing TV pilot, but I had great talent for pitching the project to networks. Like you know, basically because I'm a performer and I didn't really care. So I wasn't sweating and, oh God, this I want this to happen. Since I didn't really yeah. care, you know, I could just go in, you know, to this room of vice presidents at HBO or Showtime or CBS and just tell them a story and get all into it and, you know, shed a tear at the sentimental part. And, yeah. and so I had a hundred percent track record of, I think I sold 10 out of 10 ideas. And not one of them was ever shot, not even a pilot, never, because I, I think my pitch was better than what I delivered. And it was fine by me because I, I didn't really want that life. I, I didn't want to move to L.A. and be a sitcom writer. I, I, I liked my my life in New York as a leading lady of my off-Broadway plays. It's been perfectly fine. I'm very content. But but occasionally, I you know, I would get swept up like Rosie O'Donnell. I didn't really know her. But she's, you know, I'm very, very fond of her. And but she's a big personality and she wanted wanted me and she sort of seduced me basically. And uh, I said, okay, you know, I just I, I thought I want in a way I, I kind of wanted to get to know her better. Probably is one of the reasons why I took the job and and I, I um 
even though it was a, it was a kind of a, a bit of a disaster, uh, came away with it really liking her. Yeah. Well, there's our episode title, Seduced by Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. yeah. No, I won't do that. We won't scandalize. Um, mm-hmm. uh, to quote Bart Simpson, show business is a hideous bitch goddess. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. So you probably you, you did the right thing yeah. as a as an artist to follow your instinct. I don't know. I hope so. yeah, maybe some people wouldn't agree with that. So much more respect, honestly, because I mean, it's the ones who chase the fame, who want all the fans and want to be signing the autographs all the time, who want the endorsements and all that. They're the ones with the ego that destroys their career and mm. their reputation with other people. So much respect for you, Charles, to have followed your instinct, to have not given into temptation as much as what you could have, obviously, with Taboo. Yeah. Yep. Well, just actually, <laughs> this past week, I don't want to use names, but anyway, a very, very, very famous legendary lady who I, I adore, but she um, interested in how I, I'm doing this in such an oblique way. Actually, it's Bette Midler. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and I've known her. I've I've sort of known her for a long long time. And uh, anyway, she's interested in a play of mine for us to make a movie. And I don't know. And it's it's been dragging on for like twenty years. And anyway, I was telling her about another project, a little a little movie that my friend Carl and I are hoping to make, a little indie film. And anyway, I could tell that she thought I was totally out of my mind. <laughs> and, and, and she finally she said she said Charles, I, I think we need to send you to a rehab for the excessively loyal because i i just tend to work with this same people that i that i just love being with that are my my family like my family speaking of loyalty so you live in greenwich village you said yeah have you always lived in the village have you lived in the same apartment for all this time yeah I've lived in the same same block for 40 years. Oh, fantastic. I grew up in New York, but a little more uh, uptown. Yes. And, um, yes. But I remember when I was a kid, very young, my oldest sister, I have a sister who's 10 years older than I am, and she went to... Uh, Your sister Eileen? My sister, my sister Eileen, my sister Betsy, she... Um, was uh, studying textile design at, at the Fashion Institute of Technology, and that's downtown. Yeah. At this point, I don't want to get too complicated, but I was living in a set in the suburbs. My original family, my nuclear family, um, melted down. I, I lived in the suburb. Anyway, she would Betsy would come home, and she was living in in Greenwich Village, with you know sharing an apartment with some girls at school, and she would just tell us all these stories about Greenwich Village and coffee houses, and and the, st- and the streets had names that sounded like out of a fairy tale and Patchen Place and McDougal Street, Abingdon Square. It sounded like out of Harry Potter, you know. <laughs> anyway, I kind of vowed at 10 years old that if I if I can survive childhood, I'm going to live in Greenwich Village. And, and as soon as I, I could, I, I would, at 14, when I moved into Man- Manhattan to live with my Aunt Lillian, and I, I would sometimes just cut school or, or after school, I'd come downtown and just wander around the streets here. And it's it's, it's really a magical kind of place. And then after I graduated uh, college, you know, and I was trying to find my first apartment, found a very beautiful, beautiful street, the one awful tenement building on a very nice street, West 12th Street. And I was able to get a cheap apartment sharing with a friend of mine. And and then um, I stayed there too long in that building, about 15 years. Then I was able to um, afford to get a nicer apartment. The whole thing was I, I, I didn't want to be more than a two block radius of where I was. So I found a place just around the corner and, and I I've been here now about gosh i moved i moved into this apartment i think in 1995 i my family in general we we, we don't move around I, I i have friends who've lived in 18 apartments uh, over the course of 30 years 
but I, I, I stay put and I have a great place. It looks so I moved in this house in 1994. Oh my gosh. So I know exactly what you're I know we're going on 30 years next year. Wow. I've only just gotten a new shower for the first time in 30 years. <laughs> I'm looking through different glass in my shower. So, cause everything is falling apart. Anyways, it looks like the ankles gave way. So we're going to fall to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. 
Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on Earth his life was, dishonestly, being celebrated by all at Gumbire Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and, sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose! she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo!
We're back with Thresh and Treasure. I'm Matt, that's Aaron, or something, and we're joined by the incomparable Charles Bush. Now, it is interrogation time, muhaha, because you did play Captain Monica Stark in Psycho Beach Party. Now, uh, I have to approach this as sensibly as possible. 2000 was a tough year for slasher films in general. You just need to look at the box office. Basically, supernatural horror was reigning by that point. Were there any obstacles in getting the film off the ground? based on just judging by what was popular and getting greenlit. Uh-huh. Well, this was an indie film. This wasn't a big studio movie like Scream. But, you know, it had been a play. It was a play that I did in 1987, ran about a year. And I had a theater company in those years called mm-hmm. Theater in Limbo, and it was an ensemble, and I wrote roles. Every It was the same eight, same eight people in every play, you know, our company. And so um, I played Chicklet, the girl protagonist. I had a wonderful manager who passed away just a few years ago. I was with him for about 30 years, Jeff Melnick. And he just kept thinking that Psycho Beach Party could be a a, a movie. And I didn't really get it. I, I, I thought it was so rooted in the stage. But he kept pursuing it. And every couple of years, I'd ask him, well, what's going on with Psycho Beach Party? Well, and and then finally, um, in uh, what, so what, what year was that movie? Like uh, 99 or something? 2000, yeah. It, it all kind of came together that he began representing a young director Robert Robert Lee King yes who had made a very well received short short film that Strand had produced uh, uh, released in a um, like a it was three short films together called Boys Life or something and anyway yes, it's, um, it's like a series of three short gay movies anyway so so Strand wanted to um, make a feature with Bob King and then Jeff Melnick my manager took on Bob King as a client so he thought oh well put Charles together with Bob and that he should, he could uh, direct a, a Psycho Beach Party movie. I guess I'd never written a screenplay at this point. And the play was very, very, very different. There wasn't that much plot to it. And Bob really taught me about uh, screenwriting. And he, he was a young guy, much younger than me. He loved 70s slasher movies. The play originally was called Gidget Goes Psychotic. We didn't want to have to deal with the rights. I think it was Screen Gems or Columbia had, you know, owned the name Gidget and all that. So we went to two different um, lawyers about it in advance just to see. And, and one lawyer said, well, um, you would be in copyright infringement. And he said, well, the question was, are all the characters clearly um, parody? And it was hard to answer because in a way to do a, a spoof the pledge right some of the characters actually aren't that exaggerated i i couldn't really answer that question and so we just thought that why bother and, and actually at that point i kind of um thought was liking the play and thinking it had a little more substance than just a spoof of the movie Gidget or the TV series. Yeah. So I uh, renamed it Psycho Beach Party and changed uh, Gidget to Chicklet and Moondoggy to Starcat, that, that sort of thing. But anyway, it was very, very gentle little little play. And uh, there was no there was no killer. There was no um, Captain Monica Stark. It, it was just about these kids on the, on the beach and her mother and all that. Um, oh, so anyway, okay. Bob... King, he really loved 70s slasher movies, and he felt that the play, that the screenplay needed more of a plot and a little more suspense. So uh, I wasn't really aware, uh, didn't know much about 70s slasher movies. I, I never really saw, I don't think I'd seen any of them, to be quite honest, but he he was a real aficionado of it. And um, so uh, we created that there actually was a, a serial killer, you know, on the loose. And then yeah. um, I, I knew that at this point, you know, I was over 40 and, and the movie wasn't going to be that that stylized to have, you know, a 40-year-old guy playing teenage girl. It yeah. was, you know, a very stylized movie. 
It's not dear Evan Hansen. Yeah, yeah. And so, so we uh, we we wanted a, a biological girl playing um, Chicklet. The producers w- wanted me in the movie, and I I wanted to be in the movie too. I don't not sure if I'd ever at that point. And I, yeah, yeah, Adam's Family Values. Oh, I done that. I done yeah. That was ninety two. I was quoting you as a child, saying "Tramp." Well, that was really fun. But yeah, yeah. But I never had had a big part. Big part. So anyway, so then we thought, well, since since there's an actual killer in the plot, there has to be a, a sleuth. And and so, so I thought, oh, well, I'll I, I'll create this new character, Monica Stark, who's just, you know very efficient, but yet rather glamorous um, chief of police. And that was much, much more um, typical of the kind of roles that I've played in the theater. How did Lauren Ambrose get involved? Is that... I should just audition. I, I wasn't too involved. You know, there was all... Uh, Bob King was in L.A. and I, you know, and I was in New York. And he he's a very um, independent kind of guy. And and so basically he really cast it and then but then would send me tapes and it was between Lauren and and, and another actress who was very good. And it was funny. And in, in the movie Gidget in 1960, Sandra Dee played Gidget and she was very blonde. And so when um, Bob was wondering, Lauren has its natural you know, red hair and uh, would that be OK? And I, I said, well, you know, there's rather strong history of redheaded, funny, <laughs> funny women like you ever heard of Lucy? <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, but she she was great, and and you know, and she had play as she said played really good supporting roles in mm-hmm. a few big commercial movies. Yeah. Which I don't think she'd ever played a, a, a lead like that. And boy, she was fantastic. And, she was uh, so good. Yeah, could do anything. Yeah. Could do yeah. anything. Very funny. Yeah. Lauren Ambrose, please come on this show. Anyways, okay. Now with Drag Race, it's so predominant at the moment. If you were to do a remake of it, and you were to cast it with Rue Girls, who would you have in the cast? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Jinx Monsoon. I, I think that Jinx is sort of from from my um, in my line, as we'd say, you know, um, actor drag, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think there's no end to what Jinx Monsoon can do. And mm-hmm. uh, we've become fr- friendly lately. And so a uh, big, big, big fan. Um, Sasha Valore, I think, is so it's fascinating and uh, mm. to stick out to me. But, but you know, I, I watch that. I watch Drag Race every season. So I, I do yep. keep up on it. But uh, Jinx is my favorite. Have you watched the Down Under version? Oh, is there, is there Drag Race Down Under? Yeah. Oh, there is really? It's, it's literally taking over the world. There's Mexico starting soon. There's the Philippines. There is Germany starting. There's France, Holland, Sweden. Wow. Italy, Spain, Thailand, Chile, Australia, New Zealand together, because apparently we're not good enough for our own versions. But anyways, I've dreamcast it for you. Right. So we've got Burdine, Olivia Lux, okay. Bettina, James Mansfield. Oh, yeah. Very good. Marvel Ann. I thought Simone, because she's got a bit of spunk to her, a bit of attitude. Uh, she's, yeah, yeah. She's very yeah, much yeah. a leader. You're a good casting director. You ought to be in casting. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Should Some of these... We've had guests on and I've been like, you should Queen Latifah as Mama Rose and Tim Minear, who like American horror story, right? He's a big, huge Hollywood yeah. producer. He's gone. Wow. That is great casting. And I wanted to say, Tim, fucking hire me. Anyways, I couldn't. <laughs> so who would be, who would be the mother? Who's, who, who's Chicklet's mother? Well, I thought Ben de la Creme, but then I thought, no, Ginger Minge. But then I thought, no, Wintergreen. The cameraman Sarge, it has to be a straight man playing the mum. So Wintergreen. 
Remember in season oh, yeah. nine, they did the makeover challenge and they got members of the crew. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wintergreen was the cameraman, the stocky cameraman. Right. Who right. was <laughs> so popular and made everyone laugh. He just came back last year again. Perfect mum right there. For Lars, Bruno, the pit crew member. Starcat, Scarlet Envy out of drag. Because out of drag, he's just... He's so gorgeous. So darn pretty. So beautiful. The great Kanaka, Bob the drag queen. <laughs> As Monica, I was torn. Mrs. Kasha Davis or Thorgy Thor? Because I thought they could both play that in their own unique way. So no, no, role for, no role for Jinx at all? Wow. No, to be honest, I didn't because Jinx is so busy at the moment, she wouldn't have time to do it. But that did actually cross my mind. She was just on Broadway. She yeah. was in Chicago. And going to be on Doctor Who as well yeah. coming up. Yeah. Goodness me. And now is Chicklet or Florence, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha from the recent season because oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. has done Broadway. Uh, they were trying to push her in the drag scene, but in terms of acting, would have that nailed. So that's my dream cast there. That's a good cast. You're, you're good. Hollywood, call me or email me. Anyways. <laughs> now, yeah, very good. Excellent. Thank you very much. Now, what would Charles Bush's drag race look like aesthetically and content-wise? I think you think he's doing fine with that, without my input. What would your challenges be like? Because obviously you've got a you've got a different path on with your drag so well, this is a terrible question to ask me i don't, I don't know uh, <laughs> i thought it was a good one i'm like always oh, gonna love I mean, it, it is it is <laughs> it is a tricky thing though you know it's, i mean i understand that that you know um in a competition show you kind of have to have some sort of uh, thing that every what, what's the word i'm thinking of just that everybody can do you know just a common things like the you know the uh, lip syncing a mainstay yeah that i see why you're gonna have to do that but it it does, in a certain sense, limit things in that there are so many brilliant drag performers who just don't lip sync. That's just not what they do. And, and so it's sort of, it kind of seems like like to win, you basically have to, you know, be a wonderful lip syncer who can who can do, you know, death drops and... Blitz and, and flips. I mean, I, yeah. So, I, I mean, the most talented drag performers I know would probably be, you know, kicked out after the first attempt to lip sync. I mean, I, I know myself, I, I'm the worst lip syncer in the world. I, I really almost never had to do it. But in this movie, Die, Mommy, Die, you know, I had to pre-record song and, and um, lip sync it to it on, you know, camera. And I, oh, I, I'm just slightly off. A couple of times people said to me, oh, it's so brilliant how you're just slightly off. Like, it wasn't intentional, honey. He's just, I'm bad at it. It's it's a, a real skill. That's not even a backhanded compliment. That's like... They thought I did intentionally. They thought I really was so brilliant that I could just slightly... You're like, yes, darling. Yes, darling. That was a choice. Yeah, I should just accept it. Yeah. yeah no, I'm terrible at it. Uh, anyways, is there a director you hope tackles one of your plays? I'd like to work with Ryan Murphy. I feel like I'm the only person who hasn't been part of his universe. And, I th you know, I think he's a fascinating producer. And, and I, lo I love the fact that he is in a, this rare position that whatever kind of camp fantasy yeah. he has he can actually get get that series done yeah uh, um, 
you know, they they vary widely. Tim Minear is the man I mentioned before about the gypsy casting thing. He created 911 and Lone Star and he's worked with Ryan Murphy on about 10 different shows, right? Oh, yeah. He's right. an executive producer. He was on this show 12 episodes ago. Uh-huh. Well, give him my phone number. Yeah, no, I, I think it'd be exciting to be in, in that world. I, I could, I think I could be very good um, on American Horror. Yeah. One of those strange, grotesque roles. I think you'd be I great on that. that. Absolutely. I'd like, like to be on that. Mm. So. So if he's maybe maybe he'll be listening to his podcast. But next week was killed in American Horror Story season one oh. by Evan Peters, and I forgot to ask him about it because I'm too busy talking about Scream for bloody ninety minutes, aren't I? He has wonderful actors in that oh. show. I mean, Evan Peters, I think, is just beyond brilliant. Oh hell yeah. yes! Did you like the Dahmer series? I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, oh, it's very well done. Very well done. Uh, now Oz, this is one show, as I say. Oh, yeah. Got me through puberty. Um, you had maybe possibly the most heartbreaking death. I do remember watching it and well I think I cried when she does your nails after you are dead. Were you thankful that Natalie didn't get murdered or executed or stabbed or hung or like No, the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. Yes, yeah, so me too. I would have wanted to as well. No, what happened was well, first of all, I got onto Oz in a strange way because I, you know, I haven't really pursued an outside acting career. Yep. And um, but I was a big fan of that show. And I was on the phone talking to my late manager, Jeff Melnick, and I said, do you ever watch Oz? And he said, oh, it's too violent. I said, I love that show. And, and I wasn't really serious. I just said, I said, well, it'd be kind of fun to be on a, on a show like that. And as soon as we got off the phone, he called up the casting director and she said, oh, it'd be great to have Charles on. And next thing I know, Tom Fantana, the creator of the show, um, called me in and he said, we'd love to have you on. And who would you like to play? I said, well, you know, I'm the least street person there is. I said, but I could be sort of someone on the surface, rather refined and kind of, you know, uh, gentle, but was really with the heart of a killer. And so anyway, so they wrote this part for me. And next thing I knew, they asked it when I was available. Anyway, so, you know, I had a very good first season where I, you know, where I got into drag and I suffocated the, the old mob boss. And, and, then, uh, and then because of that, they put me on death row. And then they asked me back for a second season. I thought, well, this is, this is very exciting. Well problem was when you're on death row there's a limit to plot lines that they can do for you and the characters also uh had aids and it didn't bode well for a third season you know between the two so a lot of the time i was behind other people's scenes like in my cell there'd be something else going on and here i was on death row but i had this rack of of drag clothes in the cell and i had this wig that i was always rolling into curlers and you know and i was wondering where is he gonna ever wear this and on death row and a friend of mine said the greatest suspense of that of that season was when is nat ginsburg gonna be finished rolling that wig <laughs> <laughs> in the curlers and then i i started getting more and more sick each script you know and, and one one week you did all you saw was i was throwing up in the toilet but the scene was really in the other cell these two guys who had bigger parts and I thought, well, I'll, I'll show them, you know, and they're, they're all very kind of edgy kind of actors, you know, and so I, I so I really threw up. <laughs> and I was just making such horrible sounds that one of them said, oh, dude, you know, I think I'm going to be ill. Anyway, I, I saw that the end was kind of coming up because they were systematically killing off each of the people on death row. So I thought, yeah. I thought well, I better, I better, you know, somehow try to influence this. So I, I wrote a, a you know, since I don't pursue an acting career, I'll burn any bridge. I don't care. You know, I, I don't. 
So I just so nervy wrote to Tom Fontana, the the um, creator of the show. I wrote him a little note and I said, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you, ha- you have it all figured out and, and I'm sure it's wonderful. However, what do you think if um, when I go to my execution, because I, I really wanted to have a big scene being executed, as when I go to the execution, what if I insisted on being dressed up like um, in drag, like Susan Hayward and I Want to Live, where she played a death row inmate who goes gets uh, uh, goes to the gas chamber, and and then I described this whole scene. I said, "What if Sister Pete, Rita Moreno, played? Uh, she comes into my cell and she she does my nails, and then uh, I when I'm in full drag, I with great defiance, I go to the gas chamber, you know, and fuck you to everybody, and and so um, anyway, the next time I was on the set, I ran into him. He said, oh, I got your note. It's very interesting. Let me let me think about this. I thought, wow, wow, I got it all figured out. And then the script came for my final episode and I'm reading it. Oh, I'm in drag. I'm looking yeah. like Susan Hayward. Sister Feet's coming in, doing my nails. And then all of a sudden it changes and, and, it's just, and I start, to, I get faint and she tells me to lie down. And then this was how I wrote it. And then the next day, <laughs> they they all come to to take me to the gas chamber, and I'm I died my sleep. Yeah, it was a nice big scene for for Rita Moreno, <laughs> he got winner, you know. But <laughs> damn it, you know. So I got part of my scenario in, and then you know, not, not 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 the rest. But then it's an awful thing is um, not only can I not lip sync. But I also can't play dead very well. They move very quickly on Oz. It was, you know, you only get like two takes and then they have to go on to the next scene. And so I'm lying there, you know, on my cot, you know, and it was supposed to be a slow fade over my over my dead face, pause, slow to then all the people, you know, the, the warden and Sister Pete and P.T. Wong, his father, Ray Mukata, they're all watching. And I guess I think one of them had the final line. Well, we, do we do it? The camera's moving. The um, cameraman says, oh, cut, cut. We His eyes are twitching. His eyelids are twitching. And, oh, I'm, oh, I'm so, so sorry. And so Rita comes over to me and, and whispers, tip I learned when I was a, a young contract player at 20th Century Foxes is, is to keep your uh, eyes closed tight for five seconds before they call action. And so I said, oh, okay. So I, action. Do it. And then uh, so we, we see his face, he's, he's twitching, he's twitching, you know. So then now uh, B.D. Wong comes over and says, oh, the tip I learned was keep your eyes wide open until they call action. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, they go, wait, cut, cut, his eyes are twitching. At this point, you know, now we're finally like about five takes and I, I'm so nervous that I'm just, my eyes are just you know, twitching like mad. And the only thing finally is a, a very quick pan over my dead face <laughs> over to <laughs> <laughs> to the warden it was still heartbreaking though so to know that next time i watch it i'm not going to be crying i'm probably going to be laughing <laughs> thinking that you had some of the greatest stage actors come up to you and give you tips and yet you still yeah. lie there and you still twitch that is hilarious and i was so nervous yeah yeah i just was so self-conscious at that point try not to I didn't even know that my eyelids were twitching. Yeah. But anyway, that was my final that my final episode. Yeah, it wasn't quite how I imagined it. Yeah. It, it mm-hmm. took part of my idea. What a shame. But yes, uh, Matt, uh, there was something about the ridiculous theater company. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Oh, watch. It was oh. about ridiculous and Charles Lipton. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, um, I sort of alluded to it um, earlier, but um, I grew up in New York City going to the theater mm -hmm. and going to Broadway shows. And so when I was in college, you know, I just didn't know how I was going to uh, somehow have a career when I was just so, so gay, you know, and, and, yeah. and, there, were, and there were no roles even in the sort of the repertoire that I want dreamed of playing. And I thought if you want to do something as insane as going into the theater, you should have a whole list of parts. I want to play Hamlet. I want to play, you know, uh, this, that. And there was nothing I wanted to do, but I, I was always writing ever since I, I was writing full length plays at 11. I don't yeah. know why my teachers thought I was so, um, you know, insignificant when I was, you know, doing all this. But uh, then I saw Charles Ludlam. Actually, when I think I was still actually maybe a senior in high school, I, I'd heard, read about him and, and then I, I went to see him in the little theater down in the village. And, uh, and it was a play called Eunuchs of the Forbidden City. Ah, it was a, okay. kind of a Chinese epic about the, the last empress of China. And um, Charles Ludlam played, played her chief eunuch, Lili An. And she called him now Lillian. Uh, and it was just fabulous. I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. That it, it seemed like we had this shared the same interests of um, uh, old classic film and and opera and 19th century theater and and he had these you know people were playing male men were playing female roles and it wasn't like a burlesque it was just they playing the female parts and, mm -hmm. and doing them wonderfully and and it just uh, really changed my life that night just seeing that and and then I started seeing him more and and I I thought, well, I, I am a, I am a writer. I mean, I've always been writing plays, and I should, you know, I should write a play with part for myself and playing the f a female character. So I, I kind of really, really was great, greatly influenced by Charles Ludlam. I, uh, I, I like to think over the past forty years that um, that I've grown and maybe gone a little further away from his influence. But as I said about Jinx Monsoon, uh, I'm in Charles Ludlam's direct theatrical line. And I'm very, very proud of it. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it was a little bit of a problem when you know I got to know him and and work with him a little bit. You know, I he he was very kind. And when I was a solo, just starting out as a solo performer, he let me do my solo show at his theater, his late night shows after his performance, and nobody ever came because I was totally unknown and never got reviewed. But it was just nice that he gave me that chance. Yeah. And then while I was sort of in his orbit. Um, one of the actors had a family emergency and I filled in for a, in a little part for a couple of weeks, but that, that was it. And I never wanted to be part of his company or, or even really to be friends with them. I, I just wanted him to think I was talented. That was basically it. And, but then years later when we did vampire lesbians and, and it became a real commercial, I don't think that pleased him too well. I, I, yeah. He was nice to my face came to the show and and uh, it was it was very nice but i understand that understandably that he uh had thought that that i'd ripped him off that's oh, yeah. you know the way the way you know career careers go and um mm -hmm. but uh, you know i kind of worshipped him yeah, yeah i understand his point though i would have yeah. felt probably handled with less grace than he did yeah <laughs> frankly yeah but yes i get it that totally just wanting people to see you're talented i, I totally yeah get that. yeah it's, it's not really about you know working with them or, or yeah. in some cases maybe but yeah just you want them to think you're you know yeah, you're worthy worthy and, yep and to stand amongst me i don't think I, I put all that effort into just a simple introduction you know i put all my literary prowess into it i've just got two more questions here one of them is a little bit serious uh you have been a drag performer for a couple of years and blazed trails 
We we have yeah. kids today standing up saying, I'm the first to do this thing. No kids, you're not. There have been people that have been blazing these trails and Charles is one of them in terms of being a gender-bending performer in the public eye at a time when it wasn't safe to be gay full stop. You know, we talk about now it's not the safest times, but the 80s, the early 90s, were much, much, much less safe, as a lot of us know, with fucking broken bodies. Uh, Now, does it, when you look at the state of society today, and how people are going after drag is it hard not to be disappointed in the progress or are you remaining hopeful that there are people out there still being vocal still fighting good fights well yeah i mean it's terrifying i mean it's really 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 frightening what's going on and and uh i hope everybody has an activist spirit and i i don't know actually it was rather easy for me to be quite honest with you in in the in the mid 80s and I, I you know I've never never thought of myself as being particularly brave or, or courageous doing drag I it was just what I you know what I knew I could do and and actually um when I came along in, in 1985 um a number of people that really like like Charles Ludlum or or Charles Pierce you all have named Charles you know there were other performers who who really um uh broke ground you know I uh, when I when it was my, when it, when I came around in 1985 with Vampire Lesbians, the New York Times would it was just, just assumed would would review me. But when Ludlum started, that was not necessarily the case, or or Charles Pierce and his cabaret act, and so you know th- those boundaries were already um, uh, what, what's the word I'm thinking Bro- broken down. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, and I never I. I never thought of uh, when when I was doing drag or going to or first going to do drag. It, it it never occurred to me that it was some sort of brave act or something. It was just I just thought it'd be fun and it was the best way to express myself. And I I felt that that there was this actress in me and that and that what I wanted to do and and uh, uh, and and then it it, it all panned out. Um, but you know we you know our, our war. My youth was was AIDS, you know, and uh, and it decimated my generation and and uh, my my theater company. Basically, we, we felt you know we disbanded. It wasn't really a formalized thing. It just I, we, you know we kind of moved on to other things. But also the deaths in our company were were devastating. And um, so so yeah, that that was kind of our our war. But then. Um, What's going on today? This with DeSantis and and the and the far right and 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 the transphobia and and, uh, and dr- drag being kind of outlawed in places. I mean, it's un- un- I can't believe what I'm what I'm hearing. I just I, I absolutely find it ter- terrifying. I mean, what you know? What happens if 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 he becomes president? You know what? You know it's it's very very scary and, and you know. We must be stopped. I've said before many times, being seven years old, dressing up in girls' clothes, joining class at school, and I had the other kids laughing at me and picking on me and pushing me and kicking me, spitting on me. I think of the little boy that I was. Those little boys still exist today, but they now have adults 
who are making fun of them. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Oof. Fortunately, there's the end the internet, you know, said if you know the word gay is banned in, in schools that yeah. history has taught us that you can't ban books, you can't ban information, yeah. stop people, you know, it, it never works. Yeah. Uh, these kid um, fortunately with the internet, although I mean they might try to you know li- limit that or you know, uh, but yeah. you know, people will f- will find it, you know, and yeah, and and of course this whole thing with 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 um, drag is is really just the beginning of trying to ultimately it's to to I think to end gay marriage and 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 everything. It's just yeah. you know they, they'll go after first the, mo- the most visible you know trans people and drag i mean it's it's so it's i mean it's so it's so laughable if it wasn't so if it wasn't so so terrifying yeah that's it like look they talk about it sexualizing children you fucking idiots those dicks are tucked so fucking tightly up them and then they're taped down mm-hmm. and then they've got the gaff over them and then they've got their fucking pair of tights and then they're taped down again they've got another pair of tights over them and then they've got padding and then they've got more tights how the hell is that sexual what the hell what are they what are they doing what are they sticking their dick into except up themselves to hide it sorry well don't you think that the main issue is not that they think that the that they're that the drag queen is is being sexual with the ch- child. I think I, it seems to me that the, that's the, the argument. The greater alarm is just that they're allowing by their example and by that they're allowing children to see that there's an option of androgyny or non-binary. We always did. And, and, stupid. and but that's what they're terrified of, or or seeming, or I don't know, terrified. They're they're tr- the way their their line of attack is that uh, drag queens are sort of gro- grooming kids into giving them the information about possibilities. And that's what's terrifying to... Uh, but that's to, like, there's yeah. the truth and then there's the twisted truths. And that's what we're getting is yeah. the twisted truths that it is all sexualizing children. And and then the, the, the lie and the lies. And, and the lies yeah. and the bullshit. And it's just, it's pathetic. Yeah. It is more left-wing versus right-wing bullshit that is just petty yeah. and yeah. pathetic. And quite frankly, drag, men have been wearing, Jesus was a drag queen. Look at those dresses. He was a bearded queen. That long, flowing, beautiful hair. Come off it, man. Jesus was a drag queen. Come at me on Twitter if you dare. <laughs> Anyways, I'm so sorry to lose my shit, Charles. I'm so passionate about this stuff and... Being the host, I tend to don't know rant a lot well, on the show. Yeah, scary times, scary times. And they are. I don't, I don't get it. Look, it, well, I do get it. Drag race is at the top of the pile. It's talked about constantly. It is memed constantly. It is taking over the world, one country at a time, and that's a threat. That's a threat to the right wing who don't want the left wing because it's perceived as a left wing thing. Whether or not, doesn't matter who's involved in it or who is what wing. It's perceived as a left-wing thing, so therefore it is a threat yes. because the greatest threat to the right-wing is the left-wing being happy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to stop ranting. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Charles. It has been such a thrill, really. I know you've worked with so many of our past guests, Alison and, and Mary Tester. Oh, you had them on? Oh, gosh. Alison has been on twice. She was our first guest. Really? She's our, our fairy goddess mother, as I call her, our first guest, and I've worked a lot. I've worked many times with Allison. Many yeah. times. Love her. We'll hopefully and, we'll get and her Mary. back. Yeah. Oh, look, Mary Testa. I can't, cannot wait to get Mary Testa back again. And I did my introductions for them too. Don't you worry. Because you know, <laughs> they are my Broadway divas. But uh, anyways, where can people find you on the social medias? 
I'm on Instagram. I think it's the official Charles Bush, I think. And um, uh, my Facebook page is, you know, I'm kind of the generation that, you know, Facebook is kind of my my main um, social media thing. Um, and, uh, and well, I would, I would like to self-promote a bit. Um, I have um, a book coming out September 12th. Uh, uh, my, my memoirs, my scandalous memoirs, tell all. Uh, it's called Leading Lady. Um, what is it called? Leading Lady, the memoir of a most unusual boy. And anyway, it's uh, it's it's available right now for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, wherever fine books are sold. But it officially comes out on September twelfth. I'm so excited about it. I, I've been working on that book for like fourteen years. <laughs> I can't believe it. And it's my favorite thing I think I've ever done. And I just found out today. Just actually found out about an hour before we spoke that. Um, I'm going to be recording the um, audio book. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I, I, th- that's going to be a challenge. I only did that once before. It <laughs> didn't work very well. <laughs> but maybe it'll be better this time since it's my own book. Yeah, no, I, I did my own book and I got maybe five chapters in. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Fuck this. I'm, I'm, I do not have the patience. I wrote the darn things. I do not have the time to record them and edit them. So I just gave I up. Had I had an audition yeah, for your own me. book. Yeah. Well, basically, basically, they asked the the audio book publisher or whatever wanted me to uh, do like a test of read a couple pages, and I thought, oh God, uh, what if they replace me with Glenn Close, you know, <laughs> Olivia <laughs> Coleman? You know, so Olivia Coleman seems to do everything now, so maybe she'll be me. But yeah, no, I, I just found out uh, uh, just before we got on. Yeah. spoke that that i got the part of charles bush well done charles awesome. congratulations <laughs> it is very hard yeah. playing yourself i have to do it all the time <laughs> on this show where i have to adr my things in uh, and also for listeners at home i don't know where it is on streaming but try to find psycho beach party uh, i would give someone my spare dvd but the as i say the dvd was literally worn out um but yes, no, it is an absolute honor. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll let you go. Oh, it's been great being here. Lovely meeting both of you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Anyways, the hugest of thank yous to Charles for joining us. That was an amazing episode. I am so thrilled. Uh, also, thank you to Matt, my co-host, for joining me. And good luck in the next few weeks with the show that you are doing. All the socials, all that. I'm just going to put everything in the description below. If you want tickets to Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, Hunchback of Notre Dame, or Tarzan that Mr. J-Wags is performing in, then you can find that. Obviously, you need to be in the Utah area to see it, unless you've got money to fly over there. In which case, fly me over there so I can see my amazing fellow host perform. He is an amazing performer, so if you are in the area, definitely get tickets. Anyways, I'm really, really, really tired, so you know the drill. Take care, look after yourselves. Thank you so much for listening, and we shall see you next time. Bye bye.